Our theme for this morning comes to us from verse 11. Jesus manifested his glory. And we'll be thinking about this first of seven miracles that is recorded in John's gospel. It's a well-known miracle of, of changing Jesus, changing water into wine at this wedding. But what I want you to notice is that John doesn't actually call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And that is, pun intended, significant. Because the other gospel writers use different terms for miracles, but John's key word in his gospel for Jesus' miracle is the word sign. And by that, by calling these miracles signs, the the Holy Spirit is really telling us how we should be reading this gospel and how we should be looking at these miracles. What are signs? Well, signs point to something else. A sign points to something greater. There's always something behind the sign. The reality lies behind the sign. And that means that there is significance to what Jesus did at this wedding. He met an immediate need of providing wine, but as a sign, this miracle communicates something more to us. It points us to something greater. You see, we're being invited to look beyond the sign to the reality. We are being invited to see the glory of our Savior and to really behold the kind of Savior He is. How He meets our every need. How tender and graciously He deals with us. You see, in each one of the signs that John records, and it's... Uh, we'll see this as we uh, work through some of these signs. Uh, a lot of these people remain nameless, and I think that's significant because we're invited to see ourselves in these situations and in these people. This is not something that just touched the lives of this couple who was getting married 2,000 years ago, but we are invited to see that this miracle touches the lives of all who read it and all who embrace this same Christ. This sign points us to the gracious and loving character of Jesus. And if we look beyond the sign to the reality, we will behold his glory as these people did so many years ago. Now, I want us to think this morning about four ways in which Jesus manifested his glory by this sign. And, and the way John does this is he, he highlights certain things about what Jesus did or where it happened that, that sometimes can be lost on us. And so I want us to think about first how we see Jesus' glory in the setting of the sign. In the setting, he, he chose to perform his first miracle at this wedding. And we're told immediately of of the crisis. The the wine had run out. And Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Now that might not seem like a big deal to us. They, They ran out of wine. Can't they live without wine for the rest of the wedding? I mean, but to understand the love and compassion of Jesus in 
providing this best kind of wine, we really need to think about the cultural background here and how this really was a crisis. Weddings, weddings in the first century lasted for days on end. Uh, they would go on for at least a week. People would come and go. They were, as we would say, 24-7 uh, festivities. Um, and they weren't held at um, hotels or, or banquet halls. They were really homemade affairs, do-it-yourself uh, affairs. And it was the groom's family that was responsible for providing everything. And so if something went wrong, you couldn't just write a letter to the, uh, the manager of the hotel venue and, and complain to them and get your money back. Um, all of the responsibility fell on the groom. And at these wedding feasts, wine was the centerpiece. Um, and as we will see later, as I mentioned already, wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy and blessing and gladness and And so it made sense that wine was at the center of these wedding feasts, which were a celebration of the covenant bond of marriage. And moreover, and I think this too is a bit hard for us to identify with, this first century culture was a shame and honor culture, much like Japan is today. That was a big deal. Um, And so running out of wine would have been a devastating thing. It would have been a devastating mark of shame upon this young couple. And so we should really read Mary's words and think, whoa, this groom had done the unthinkable. He had failed to provide enough wine. And so for this young couple who were beginning their new life together, running out of wine at their wedding had the potential to from a culture perspective, ruin their lives. It would have brought on them a mark of shame that they never would have lived down. And perhaps even more shocking, believe it or not, scholars tell us that in this time period, if the groom's family failed to provide enough food or wine at a wedding... The groom could be sued, and if he couldn't pay the judgment, put in prison. And I was talking with my kids about this, and they were asking why. Well, no no cars. Everybody traveled long distances, and they trusted that there would be enough provisions there for them. And so not only did this couple risk lifelong shame, but they were at the risk of beginning their marriage in crippling debt, or even worse, the groom being in prison. Their lives are on the verge of ruin. From a cultural perspective, they were in a completely helpless and hopeless situation. At this point, they could have done nothing to help themselves. They couldn't just run down to the wine and spirit store and get another case of wine. When the wine was gone, it was gone. And so we need to read Mary's words with a tone of alarm. They have no wine. And understanding this background helps us to understand the great love and compassion 
of Jesus. By providing them with the best kind of wine, He saved them from a life of shame and guilt and debt. He transformed this situation from one of hopelessness and despair into one of celebration and blessing. But again, as a sign, we're being invited to look past the miracle, past the sign to the person and the meaning behind it. Here is a couple who represents you and me. Helpless, hopeless. And yet here we find Jesus, the eternal word, the man from heaven condescending to help them. They were in a state of poverty. They were going to suffer shame. They couldn't do anything for themselves. They were going to be, the groom was going to be imprisoned. And is this not emblematic of our condition without Christ? Sinners dead in our trespasses, in our sin, having to bear the shame and guilt. And yet, Jesus, the man from heaven, comes. And lays down his life for us. Taking our guilt. Taking our shame. Taking our sin from us. And in doing so. He brings us into the blessed joy of life with him. You know it's no coincidence I think that Jesus performed his first sign at a wedding, which so often in the Bible is symbolic of our relationship with Jesus. The culmination of our salvation in the book of Revelation is described as what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Christ displays His glory in the setting of this sign and shows us how He rescues us from shame and guilt and sin. But secondly, and perhaps more oddly, he manifests his glory in his description of his mother. And this description that Jesus gives to Mary actually reveals his identity. John records this brief conversation between Jesus and Mary because it points to something greater. Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we really think about that, that's kind of a strange way to address your mother. None of us here who are sons would, I think, dare call our mothers woman. And yet this is what Jesus does. And knowing the love and gentleness of Jesus, especially towards women, this maybe strikes us as odd. And some of the Bible versions actually try to soften it. The NIV adds the word dear, dear woman, saying this isn't as bad as it sounds. But the word dear is not there in the original. So what's happening here? We know that Jesus is not being harsh or disrespectful with his mother. What's the significance of this? I want you to notice something. He gives this response 
to Mary, which seems to us to be a bit harsh, a bit terse, and yet Mary derives hope from his response. I mean, we would expect a mother to walk away discouraged and disheartened, but he calls her woman. She immediately says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Why does she come away hopeful? Well, this simple term, woman, jarred Mary's memory. She certainly knew of that gospel promise from Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God had given that very special promise regarding a woman and her son. And here is the woman and the son. Here is the offspring of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible unfolded that promise, which culminates at the cross where Christ crushed the head of the serpent. And Jesus here is addressing his mother in terms of this promise. And although the hour of his death and resurrection had not yet come, Mary was reminded of the great Savior that her son was destined to be and she was hopeful. If he was going to bring the forgiveness of sins for all people, then he could certainly handle this situation. And so she, with submission, says, do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus' glory is displayed here in that simple term, woman. And friends, this reminds us that we can often find ourselves in hard situations, hopeless situations like this one. And we may pray and ask the Lord to do something for us, and he may not do it. And we can get anxious, but here I think we are reminded. Because what Mary was simply saying is, not my will, his be done. And I think it reminds us of how important it is for us to trust in his goodness. He means to do us good. and He will help us in His time, in a way that is befitting His glory. So He displayed His glory in His description of His mother, but then thirdly, He displayed His glory in John's description of these water jars. Now again, John did not need to give us this detail, but he does. Look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So he's making a point with this description of these water jars. They were here for the Jewish ritual purification. They would draw water from from these jars, uh, not for cleanliness purposes, but for ritual cleansing. Uh, That water symbolized 
their need for cleansing. It reminded them that they were sinners who needed cleansing. And if if they were ever going to come into the presence of God, they needed to be cleansed from their sin. And John tells us there were six of them. And again, this is not an idle detail. For the Israelite, the number seven was the number of perfection or completion. It's all over John's gospel. There are seven sermons, seven signs, seven I am sayings of Jesus. We we see it throughout the book of Revelation. It's that number of perfection, completion. But the number six, on the other hand, to the Israelite was the number of incompletion, inadequacy, imperfection. And here are these water jars. And the number six, it symbolized the incompleteness, the inadequacy of the cleansing that mere water could give. You see, the six stone water jars pointed to the incompleteness of the Old Testament shadows and rituals. The inadequacy of the Old Testament ceremonial law. We'll think about that in the second service. Why did the ceremonial law pass away? It was a a temporary, inadequate pointer to something greater. And in this little detail, what is being communicated is what John already said in his introduction when he said the law was given through Moses... But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The rituals for purification, those came through Moses. All those things that were commanded in the ceremonial law that pointed to the purification that was needed to be right with God. But nothing that the law commanded, none of the rituals, none of the shadows could ultimately accomplish what they promised. They were pointing to something greater. Whether it was the sacrifices, the ritual cleansings, the temple, the priest, they were all temporary, inadequate pointers to the cleansing that Jesus would bring. The writer to the Hebrews outlines this, how God deliberately He deliberately built in inadequacies in those things so that people never thought that those things were the end. But they were always looking for the reality, Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews, he uses the same word that is used here in this text of these water jars But he uses it of Christ when he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, John is showing us that here is Jesus, the one who has made final and complete, perfect purification for our sins at the cross. And it's no coincidence that Wine is the symbol in the Lord's Supper of Christ's blood that was shed for our purification. You see, Jesus manifested his glory by showing 
how he fulfilled all the types and shadows of the Old Testament and that his sacrifice was the thing that brought final and complete, adequate purification. And finally, we see Jesus' glory displayed and manifested in the Master's testimony. And it's, I don't know if comical is the right word, but it's ironic at least that he didn't even realize what had happened, and yet here this man is declaring the glory of Jesus for us. Look at verses 9 and 10. When the Master of the Feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the best wine, the good wine, until now. In the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy and gladness and blessing. We'll, We'll sing that from Psalm 104 here shortly. It says that God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. And we read of one of those great promises in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, there would be an overabundance of the best wine. We read it in Joel 3.18, Amos 9.13. Both of those passages say when Jesus comes, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. We read in Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. An abundance of the best kind of wine, says the Scriptures, would mark the Messiah's coming. In other words, He would bring joy and salvation and gladness and blessing. And here, what do we find Jesus doing? providing an abundance of the best kind of wine. This is Jesus in sign language, declaring himself to be the Messiah. Notice how the master comments on the quality of the wine. He's amazed that the best wine but we also get insight into the abundant quantity of it as well. We're told how much those stone water jars held, 20 or 30 gallons. And if we uh, calculate that in terms of bottles of wine, that would be equivalent to somewhere around 900 bottles of wine. That's a pretty nice wine cellar for a new poor couple to gifted with at their wedding and so not only did jesus provide the best kind of wine but he provided this overabundance of it and again wine was a valuable commodity in this ancient culture and so this would have been an amazing wedding gift for this young couple but look beyond the sign Look at the kind of Savior He is. Look at what He does for each and every one of His people. It points to the truth, again, that John had already stated in his introduction. 
in, in chapter 1, verse 16, that from His fullness, what have we received? Grace upon grace upon grace. In other words, the mercy, the grace, the blessing that Christ gives to His people will never run out. There will always be an overabundance of it. You know, this testimony of, of the, the master of ceremonies, you have kept the good wine until now. It reveals the love, the provision of Jesus, how he saves you and sanctifies you, how he preserves you, how he showers you with joy and blessing, how he transforms our lives from a, a condition of hopelessness and helplessness to to one of joy and blessing. It makes me think of Psalm 103. It talks about how He redeems our life from the pit. But He doesn't just do that. What does He do? He crowns us with goodness and with love and with His mercy. And friends, it reminds us that Our God is able to do far more abundantly than we can think or ask. And we are all so guilty of selling our Savior short. Do we really believe that His grace for us will never run out? That He means to do us good? That He he means for us to be joyful and glad in Him? Again, verse 11 gives us the significance of the miracle. Jesus manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's clear from the previous section that the disciples had already believed in Jesus in a saving way. But what John is telling us here is that their faith was strengthened. And this is what Christ desires for us that we see His glory, and as we see His glory and the wonderful Savior that He is, that our faith is strengthened. That's why He calls us to gather together on the first day of the week, to hear His Word, that we can see His glory and have our faith strengthened as we behold Him. We need to be reminded that this young couple, this no-name couple that we should see ourselves in, is a picture of us. That we are spiritually poor, that we were on the verge of shame and guilt, that we owed a debt to God that we could never pay, that we were completely helpless, that we had offended God in ways that we could not imagine, and yet... Here we are showed that Jesus saves the helpless. He saves the poor and needy. Contrary to what is taught in much of modern Christianity, Jesus did not come to save those who help themselves. He came to save the helpless. He came to save those who have messed up their lives with sin. I want you to notice here in closing how Christ really did 
two things for this couple. He not only saved them from their poverty and debt, but he showered them with blessing in the form of this wine. And is that not a picture of the gospel? Christ has saved us from the penalty of sin by his death on the cross, but he does more than that. He gifts us with his perfect righteousness. He gives us his spirit to live within us and to change us. And so friends, whether you have never trusted in Christ or whether you are a sinner struggling with weak faith, the call today to us is to look to Christ, to see his glory and his love and his power and embrace that Christ and love him and trust him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we we thank you for the promise that your grace to us will never run out. Lord, we pray that this day that we might behold your glory and that we might more firmly, as the disciples did so many years ago, more firmly believe in you and trust in you. Lord, we pray that we might be assured that you indeed mean to do us good, that you have rescued us from shame and guilt and sin and death. But more than that, you have crowned us. You have gifted us with your mercy and with your love. Lord, assure us this day that indeed your favor is upon us, Lord, give us joy in Christ Jesus. Lift us up and in our, our trials as we wait upon you. Lord, may we learn to say, not our will, but yours be done. Lord, cause us to behold your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.